Chapter Fourteen of Gold by Stuart Edward White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Three: The Mines. Chapter Fourteen: Sutter's Fort. Sutter's Fort was situated at the edge of the Live Oak Park. We found it to resemble a real fort, with eye walls, bastions, and a single gate at each end, through which one entered to a large enclosed square perhaps a hundred and fifty yards long by fifty wide. The walls were not pierced for guns, and the defense seemed to depend entirely on the jutting bastions. The walls were double and about twenty-five feet apart. Thus, by roofing over this space and dividing it with partitions, Sutter had made up his barracks, blacksmith's shop, bakery, and the like. Later in our investigations, we even ran across a woolen factory, a distillery, a billiard room, and a bowling alley. At the southern end of this long space stood a two-story house. Directly opposite the two-story house, and at the other end of the enclosure, was an adobe corral. The place was crowded with people. A hundred or so miners rushed here and there on apparently very important business, or loafed contentedly against the posts or the sun-warmth of adobe walls. In this latter occupation they were aided and abetted by a number of the native Californians. Perhaps a hundred Indians were leading horses, carrying burdens, or engaged in some other heavy toil. They were the first we had seen, and we examined them with considerable curiosity. A good many of them were nearly naked, but some had on portions of battered, civilized apparel. Very few could make up a full suit of clothes, but contented themselves with either a coat or a shirt or a pair of pantaloons, or even with only a hat, as the case might be. They were very swarthy, squat, villainous-looking savages, with big heads, low foreheads, coarse hair, and beady little eyes. We stopped for some time near the sentry box at the entrance, accustoming ourselves to the whirl and movement. Then we set out to find McClellan. He was almost immediately pointed out to us, a short, square, business-like man with a hard gray face, dealing competently with the pressure. A score of men surrounded him, each eager for his attention. While we hovered, awaiting our chance, two men walked in through the gate. They were accorded the compliment of almost a complete silence on the part of those who caught sight of them. The first was a Californian, about thirty-five or forty years of age, a man of a lofty, stern bearing, swarthy skin, glossy side whiskers, and bright, supercilious eyes. He wore a light blue short jacket, trimmed with scarlet and with silver buttons, a striped silk sash, breeches of crimson velvet, met below by long embroidered deerskin boots. A black kerchief was bound crosswise on his head, entirely concealing the hair, and a flat-crowned, wide gray hat, heavily ornamented with silver, completed this gorgeous costume. He moved with the assured air of the aristocrat. The splendor of his apparel, the beauty of his face and figure, and the grace of his movements attracted the first glance from all eyes. Then immediately, he was passed over in favor of his companion. 
The latter was a shorter, heavier man of more mature years. In fact, his side whiskers were beginning to turn gray. His costume was plain, but exquisitely neat, and a strange blend of the civil and the military. The jacket, for example, had been cut in the trim military fashion, but was worn open to exhibit the snowy cascade of linen beneath. But nobody paid much attention to the man's dress. The dignity and assured calm of his face and eye at once impressed one with a conviction of unusual quality. Johnny stared for a moment, his brows knit. Then, with an exclamation, he sprang forward. Captain Sutter, he cried. Sutter turned slowly to look Johnny squarely in the face, his attitude one of cold but courteous inquiry. Johnny was approaching, hat in hand. I confess he astonished me. We had known him intimately for some months, and always as the harem-scarum, impulsive, hale fellow, bubbling, irresponsible. Now a new Johnny stepped forward, quiet, high-bred, courteous, self-contained. Before he had spoken a word, Captain Sutter's aloof expression had relaxed. "'I beg your pardon for addressing you so abruptly,' Johnny was saying. "'The surprise of the moment must excuse me. Ten years ago, sir, I had the pleasure of meeting you at the time you visited my father in Virginia.' "'My dear boy,' cried Sutter, "'you are, of course, the son of Colonel Fairfax. But ten years ago you were a very young man.' A small boy, rather, laughed Johnny. They chatted for a few moments, exchanging news, I suppose, though they had drawn beyond our earshot. In a few moments we were summoned and presented, first to Captain Sutter, then to Don Gaspar Martinez. The latter talked English well. Yank and I, both somewhat silent and embarrassed before all this splendor of manners, trailed the triumphal progress like two small boys. We were glad to trail, however. Captain Sutter took us about, showing us in turn all the many industries of the place. The old peaceful life is gone, said he. The fort has become a trading post for miners. It is difficult now to get labor for my crops, and I have nearly abandoned cultivation. My Indians I have sent out to mine for me. He showed us a row of long troughs outside the walls to which his Indian workmen had come twice a day for their rations of wheat porridge. They scooped it out with their hands, he told us, like animals. Also, he pointed out the council circle beneath the trees, where he used to meet the Indians. He had great influence with the surrounding tribes, and had always managed to live peacefully with them. But that is passing, said he. The American miners, quite naturally, treat them as men, and they are really children. It makes misunderstanding and bloodshed and reprisals. The era of good feeling is about over. They still trust me, however, and will work for me. Don Gaspar here excused himself on the ground of business, promising to rejoin us later. That trouble will come upon us next, said Captain Sutter, nodding after the Spaniard's retreating form. It's already beginning. The Californians hold vast quantity of land with which they do almost nothing. A numerous and energetic race is coming, and it will require room. There is conflict there, and their titles are mixed, very mixed. It will behoove a man 
to hold a very clear title when the time comes. Your own titles are doubtless clear and strong, suggested Johnny. None better. My grant here came directly from the Mexican government itself. The captain paused to chuckle. I suspect that the reason it was given me so freely was political. There existed at that time a desire to break up the power of the missions, and the establishment of rival colonies on a large scale would help to do that. The government evidently thought me competent to undertake the opening of this new country. Your grant is a large one, surmised Johnny. Sixty miles by about twelve, said Captain Sutter. We had by now finished our inspection and stood by the southern gate. I am sorry, said Captain Sutter, that I am not in a position to offer you hospitality. My own residence is at a farm on the Feather River. This fort, as no doubt you are aware, I have sold to the traders. In the changed conditions, it is no longer necessary to me. Do not regret the changed conditions, asked Johnny, after a moment. I can imagine the interest in building a new community, all these industries, the training of the Indians to work, the growing of crops, the raising of cattle. One may regret changed conditions, but one cannot prevent their changing, said Captain Sutter, in his even, placid manner. The old condition was a very pleasant dream. This is reality. We walked back through the enclosure. Our companion was greeted on all sides with the greatest respect and affection. To all he responded with benign but unapproachable dignity. From the vociferating group he called the traitor McClellan, to whom he introduced us, all three, with urbane formality. These young men, he told McClellan, who listened to him intently, his brows knit, are more than acquaintances. They are very especial old friends of mine. I wish to bespeak your good offices for what they may require. They are on their way to the mines. And now, gentlemen, I repeat, I am delighted to have had this opportunity. I wish you the best of luck, and I sincerely hope you may be able to visit me at Feather River, where you are always sure of a hearty welcome. Treat them well, McClellan. You know, Captain, friends of yours are friends of mine, said McClellan briefly. At the end of half an hour, we found ourselves in possession of two pack horses and saddles, and a load of provisions. Look out for horse thieves, advised McClellan. These here greasers will follow you for days, waiting for a chance to get your stock. Don't pick it with rawhide rope, or the coyotes are likely to gnaw your animals loose. Better buy a couple of hair ropes from the nearest mechs. Take care of yourselves. Goodbye. He was immediately immersed in his flood of business. We were in no hurry to return, so we put in an hour or so talking with the idlers. From them we heard much praise for Sutter. He had sent out such and such expeditions to rescue snow-bound immigrants in the mountains. He had received hospitably the travel-worn transcontinentals. He had given freely to the indigent, and so on without end. I'm very glad that even at second hand I had the chance to know this great-hearted old soldier of Charles X while in the glory of his possessions and the esteem of men. Acre by acre his lands were filched from him, and he died in Washington, vainly petitioning Congress for restitution.
End of chapter 14.